And hello, everybody. Welcome to FSU Coach Live. My name is Tim Bankhurst, and today's special guest is Kathy DeBoer. She is the executive director of the American Volleyball Coaches Association. Um, Kathy, you've had quite a career, and we were talking a little bit about before this show about some of the topics we're about to talk about. But if you wouldn't mind, just give us a brief overview of how you got into being the executive director. Sure. Uh, so I uh, am a uh, Title IX child, if you will. Uh, my career, uh, I started as an athlete in the early days of Title IX. Um, women's athletics in the 70s were very much like men's athletics in the 50s, if you will, uh, where the, a lot of the, the good athletes played multiple sports and there were limited opportunities. Um, and so I played, um, what, volleyball and basketball and tennis and softball and every sport around uh, in high school and then played volleyball and basketball and tennis in college, uh, played um, professional basketball for two years after college, and then it was time to get a job. Um, and this was 1980. And everybody was on a body hunt uh, for women uh, to work in this growing um, profession of coaching and administration. And fortunately, I didn't have to compete with anybody who had any experience because nobody had any experience. Uh, and so I got my first head coaching job, uh, coaching volleyball at Ferris State uh, back in 1980 and uh, went from there to the University of Kentucky. Then thought I wanted to be an athletics director uh, and so moved from coaching into administration uh, and worked in fundraising and external affairs and marketing uh, for about 10 years. Uh, and, um, and then moved from there to city government for three years, <laughs> working in parks and recreation, uh, and then became the executive director of the ABCA uh, in, uh, in 2006. So I've been in this job for uh, for 15 years. And, you know, my parents said to me as I was um, entering my 50s um, that they, when I was growing up, never realized that you could have a career in sports. And so they were always waiting for me to get a real job. Mm. And like I say, when I got to my 50s, they went, oh, okay, so you really can have a real job and just stay working in sports your whole life. And I was like, yep. So, you know, executive director, it's, it sounds a little glamorous, important position. What are your day-to-day -day responsibilities when you have a title like that? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's, um, that's a great question uh, to, to the extent that um, there's times that I, I feel as if I'm um, uh, responsible for a mile wide and an inch deep. Um, of, of activity. Uh, so ABCA is an umbrella organization. Um, over coaching, we say from cradle to grave. So um, we are engaged with youth coaches, with high school coaches, with college coaches in all the different sectors, uh, with men's volleyball, boys volleyball, men's volleyball, women's volleyball, girls volleyball, beach volleyball, and both the men's and the women's side. Um, and, and so, 
um, a lot of my daily activity, I have, I have uh, nine staff members and a lot of my daily activity uh, is um, keeping them um, focused on doing the work, if you will, of the AVCA in terms of membership management and convention planning and high school coaches, um, um, e-newsletters and awards and, and all those things. Um, well, while I work with the board to set a strategic direction for how do we make volleyball matter? So yeah. our mission is to make volleyball matter. And whether that's with the media, whether that's with coaches, whether that's with parents or players, obviously we're a coaches association. So the medium that we work through is coaches and their athletics administrators. But yeah, so what do I do every day? I try to make volleyball matter in this country. Okay, so in speaking with that, can you just give me a ballpark of how many coaches are under this umbrella? Yeah, um, we have um, we had about eighty two hundred pre COVID. All right, we talk about BC before COVID, mm-hmm. um, and then we went through COVID, uh, where a lot of sports didn't even play right. this last year, and so a lot of coaches didn't see the need, and I get it to belong to a professional association when they didn't have a team. And so um, we, we do membership reviews every week and we're at about 6,800 now we're on the rebound. Um, We dropped um, quite precipitously during the year, but we're on our way back. And so, yeah, yeah. We're at about 6,800 right now. Well, one of the discussions that, that has been going on during COVID has been the Olympic sports. And of course, volleyball is one of those. How do you stay relevant in, in a, in an environment we're talking collegiately here in an environment where athletic directors are looking at budget line items and are claiming erroneously or not that Olympic sports are expensive. We don't need them we can invest more heavily in other sports that generate more revenue. So let's just get rid of volleyball. How, how do you, how do you defend against that or, or prepare things to rebut those kind of claims? Because I mean, we've, we've all read about them over the last 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most intriguing things to me right now, Tim is, is, how the paradigm has shifted in the last 12 months. Um, 12 months ago, um, we were fighting for our lives in Olympic sports. Um, I'm part of a intercollegiate coach association coalition, ICAC, that has uh, almost all the executive directors of Olympic sport coaches associations in it. We had actually employed a public relations firm in New York uh, because the group of five commissioners had come out with a letter to Mark Emmert um, asking that Division I sports sponsorship minimums be reduced from 16 to 13 for four years because of COVID Mm -hmm. and um, there was only one reason to do this, 
it was to offload sports, mm -hmm. um, you know, to drop sports and to reduce the amount of opportunities uh, that 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 colleges were going to be providing uh, to student athletes in Division One. Right. And um, fascinatingly, last week, Friday, uh, there was an article in one of the dailies that I, I read on just news that's happening that was titled how to is it possible to drop sports without committing professional suicide it was an athletics director publication and so the paradigm shift from the start of covid until today when we're pulling out of it on the value of olympic sports and who should be offloaded and under what under what circumstances the shift has been incredibly dramatic in the last year. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for it, although I'm, I'm still not quite certain as to what all of them are. Um, but, but one, I, I think there's been a lot of attention in the media um, that we're spending a lot of money, for instance, buying out a multi-million dollar coach who didn't win enough games um, but still has time left on his contract to go ahead and hire another multi-million dollar coach at the same time that we're saying we can't afford the track team mm -hmm. or that we can't afford the women's swimming team mm -hmm. uh, because we don't have enough money. And, and, and to any, to, to most people in the general public, that's an absurdity. That sounds absurd, whether it is or not for an AD, it sounds absurd. It's like, why are you picking on the men's volleyball team? or the beach volleyball team um, or the women's volleyball team. Um, you know, this is a, this is a managerial problem. The other thing that's happening in higher education across the board, even at the large publics um, is the number of college age students is shrinking. And so schools are on in a competitive event for the tuition dollars that are generated by students. Um, you mentioned it when we were talking pre the program about, you know, what things you need to do to sustain the coaching education program that you've got. You need students in it because that and, and more and more colleges are seeing that even at the division one level, at the division uh, two, division three, the NAI level, I'll give you just an example in men's volleyball. Um, this last year, during COVID, we picked up two Division I men's volleyball teams. We will add nine Division II men's volleyball teams. We'll add five NAIA, and we'll add six in Division Three. Well, how, so, how is that, or why is that happening? It's happening because enrollment among college age, the college age demographic is shrinking across the United States um, and offering somebody an opportunity to play on a sports team is a way to compete for them to attend your college. Got it. And so it's not just happening in volleyball. That's obviously where I'm celebrating it, but it's happening in wrestling. It's happening in soccer. It's happening, uh, in swimming, everybody is gaining programs outside of the Division Ones, um, and some of us are even gaining some at the Division One level. 
And, and so, again, the narrative that we can't afford these sports and we have to drop them because they're too expensive, it just rings hollow to the public. There's also been a group in, in, uh, of, of attorneys who have been working on Title IX things for many, many years, but really in obscurity, um, because what Division I schools were doing is they were dropping a women's team and immediately assisting all the good players in transferring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so the team was out of there or the men's team, same thing. You drop the men's soccer team, you run in, you go, Hey, we're going to help you guys all find new places to play. Kids only have four years in their college career. They don't want to stay around in a school that doesn't want their program. They transfer out to other schools. Boom. You've gotten rid of the problem. Well, now with the increased activism among student athletes, some of it having to do with racial justice things that happened during COVID and during the pandemic, a heightened awareness by all of us about those kinds of things has created much more activism among student athletes. And student athletes now are saying, hey, wait a minute, is this legal? And these attorneys are reaching out to them going, it's not. And if you would like me to represent you, I'm here. And so all of a sudden, the narrative has shifted very dramatically and dropping Olympic sports is no longer a way to save your athletics department. And it may be a way to shorten your career. Mm -hmm. and, and we've seen that actually with a couple of universities that have rescinded their decisions to drop some of those Olympic sports. Uh, well, William and Mary, Clemson, uh, Dartmouth, Brown. I mean, there's all kinds of them, and I know them all. I've got them all written down here of, yeah. of schools that have, backed, that have backed away uh, from the dropping of sports. I want to get into coaching in a minute, but one more question and just about your role. You, you oversee not only college, but also, as you alluded to, professional Olympic sports um, or the Olympic level also youth programming in high school and so on. But you also oversee different disciplines where you talked about the men's, the women's, the, in, uh, the indoor, the beach. How do, you, how do you disseminate your time and effort across different disciplines where everybody is clamoring for Kathy's attention and Kathy's support and Kathy's, we need this, this, and this. How do you, how do you manage recognition of those disciplines disciplines and, and treating them equally when perhaps they aren't equal in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the advantages uh, that I have in volleyball that many of my counterparts don't have, if they do both men's and women's or different disciplines is that in the sport of volleyball, women's college is played in the fall. Mm -hmm. Men's college is played in the spring and beach is played in the spring. And so my general, uh, you know, our general routines if, as a staff, if, if you will. So my communications person can spend 80% of their time on women's volleyball, women's polls, um, um, you know, women's webinars, my education person, the same thing from July to December and 20% of their time on men's and beach. And then in the spring, they can flip. So mm -hmm. they spend 80% of their time now on things directed at men's and beach and 20% of their time 
on the women's court and, and, and the high school. And so, so we've been able now, instead of having this crush, like, like maybe basketball has or soccer has of everything going on at the same time, um, um, you know, where it would be much more difficult. We got a little taste of this, of that, Tim, this year, because almost everything was canceled in the fall. Mm -hmm. And so all of the uh, women's uh, high schools, many of them still played in the fall, but, but most of the college women's events dumped into the spring. And so between April nine and May nine, I went to 11 different championships, men's, women's, and beach um, all over the country. I called it my Where's Waldo tour. Uh, sometimes I was just there for a day, uh, but just to be with, uh, and it was, it was the best 30 days of my career. I will, I'll tell you, it was just so fun. I was vaccinated, so I was, I was able to be out again and and just to be with coaches and with players that were playing for championships but it also gave me a window into what some other sports have to deal with that don't have these opposite seasons girls mm -hmm. high school plays in the fall boys high school plays in the spring and so volleyball is a little bit uniquely situated that allows the avca to serve all the different constituent groups so we talked a little bit about this before the show in, in terms of coaches and their qualifications, professional development and so on. When, when you look at coaching as a profession and you look obviously in, in volleyball, what do you see coaches lacking or needing in order to be maybe considered more professional or be treated more professionally? Because uh, again, as we discussed before the show, a lot of times coaches don't require it's the, the training isn't required and we see a lot of varied levels of coaching quality across, mm -hmm. you know, all of the levels. Mm -hmm. What's, what's missing? What do we need to do as FSU coach or, or even in your own organization in order to, to bring that level up and, and really make coaching a, um, a really professional profession. Yeah. 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 Well, a couple of things. Um, one is most of us go into coaching because we love the sport. All right. We loved playing it. Uh, we loved competing in it. Maybe we're still competing in it. And, um, and so what we know is we know what the person who taught us said, and we repeat those things and we know the drills that they ran right. and we repeat those and we get, we get, um, fixated on um, drills, if you will. Um, and, and I certainly did this uh, early in my career that I just thought if there was a lot of activity going on in the gym, if the kids were worn out, if I was worn out at the end of practice, that we'd accomplished something. <laughs> and uh, maybe sometimes we had because we'd gotten a lot of touches or you know, we'd, we'd hit a lot of balls, uh, but, but there, I really didn't have a very good concept on how to teach things. Mm -hmm. um, I, I thought of myself as a visual learner and I assumed everybody else was visual learners. And so somebody said, well, all right, how do I hit the ball down the line? And I would go, well, toss me a ball. And they'd Just toss me a like ball this. and I'd hit it down the line. And they're like, well, how did you do that? 
and I say, well, toss me a ball. And so it's like, you know, you hit it down the line. They'd say, well, all right, but how did you get it to go down the line? And usually at that point in time, I would get frustrated because I didn't know the answer to their question. And I would go, what are you, an idiot? You could say that back then. Now you can't say that. But anyway, you know, and it's like, here, toss me a third, just like this. And I didn't know how it happened and, and what were the cues. And so a lot of times I think better athletes are the ones that go into coaching and we're not very frequently the best coaches um, because we we learned something way back when someplace and we don't even remember how we learned it. I remember asking Karts Karai, who's one of the best volleyball players of all time, and he was known as a great reader. And what we mean by that in volleyball is maybe like a Gretzky. He could he knew what was going to happen next. And so a tip ball would never go down because he would see it coming before the player ever tipped the ball or a short serve would never fool him because he could see it was a short serve. He was already standing there. And I said, can you analyze how you know what you know? And only somebody like Karch, you know, most people would go, we just know it. It's not true. You are looking at different cues. And he came up with like 17 different things that you could look at. And he was an elite athlete who was willing to do that. But I think a lot of times players who don't play at the top levels are much more cognizant of what are the cues? What are the things you need to be told? You hit the ball down the line by moving your arm in this pattern and finishing with your hand in this particular way. Um, and so, so that's one thing is we have to learn how to coach by unpacking what comes to us, we think naturally. It wasn't natural. Somebody taught it to us. We learned it over time uh, to be able to teach things. And then I think the second and maybe even a more difficult part of coaching development is what I would call impulse control. <laughs> and what that means is when you're a player, you're an active participant in what goes on in the sport and you can make change by participating. When you are a coach, you are a facilitator of change and you are a trainer to try and get people to behave in certain ways to make them successful. And it's very, very difficult to separate how they perform with how you feel about yourself. How they perform becomes a reflection of you as a person, as a human being. And so in every sport, particularly early in seasons, but sometimes throughout a season, they're just train wrecks. They forget how to play. You know, it's you have a series of points where it's just a disaster. If that disaster is a reflection of me as a human being, then I'm going to react in one of two ways. If I'm an extrovert, I'm going to usually blow a gasket. All right. I'm going to get angry or loud or whatever. If I'm an introvert, I'm going to close into my shell and withdraw. And neither one of those are effective ways um, to try and get your team back to functioning. And so to be completely 100% engaged and caring about what's happening on the volleyball court, but still keep it separated from who you are 
and the quality of you as a human being is what I call impulse control. Mm. And it's hard. It yeah. is the hardest thing to learn as a coach. But I would argue as well, it's something that parents do as well, which is why we see that vicarious living of parents through their, their athletes. Absolutely. Their yeah. success is a reflection on, on us as parents. That's right. You're playing terribly or you're not even trying or you're embarrassing me right? or whatever. These are all things that coaches and parents may not say, but we feel um, when the, the person that we've paid to have this volleyball lesson or play on this team or that we are paid to coach and make successful – when they're not succeeding up to our expectations um, and maybe they don't even care about it as much as we think they should care about it. Um, yeah. All of that emotional stuff. Um, and, and, and to be frank, Tim, I don't know if that can be taught or if it has to be lived. I think, I mean, this is more of a discussion rather than a, a question, but, just the recognition and awareness of it, you know, coaches who understand that, Oh, here I am, you know, starting to go that direction. I need to pull back. And I need to understand that is, is step one, I think. And, and sure there's, there's education that can help, but, but just the recognition of, Hey, Tim, you're doing it again. You're starting to get too involved. You're starting to get too personal remember what your role is and who you are as a person. I think that is, um, that is a way that we can learn. Otherwise we will all continue to do it. And as you alluded to, we're going to fail many times because of it. Right. Right. And I think that the coaching culture has changed very, very dramatically, uh, from when I was, was in it. Um, you know, I said, you know, emotional intelligence is two things, self-awareness and self-control. And I, I at least got to the point where I was self-aware in that I knew I was going to blow. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and I would even tell my team this time out, it's not going to help you, but it's going to help me. All right. I, you know, everything else. And fortunately the athletes had played for me, most of them, you know, could roll their eyes clandestinely or whatever and just go, Oh boy, here she goes, <laughs> you know, and they, they would forgive me and go back out onto the court, not having learned anything from me other than I was mad, um, you know, and stuff, but I never got the, 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 the self-control, the, the changes that I've watched in volleyball coaches over the years. And I've known some of them for 30, 40 25 years for many, many years. And I've seen them change from crazy people or people that it's like, okay, if this other team can just hang in there for enough points here, so-and-so is going to blow and then their team's going to lose it and they're mm -hmm. going to lose matches. Mm -hmm. I can see coaches cost their teams points and cost their teams matches. And then I could see them grow. I, I don't know how to say it any other way, but grow out of it, if you will. To now where they'll sit on the bench with a book sometimes. And I, I always joked with them that they were just writing one cuss word after another in that book. 
but whatever it was that they were writing in that book, it was the thing that was keeping them under control, if you will, from not blowing up on their team. But yes, they, they may have learned to control those emotions, et cetera. If we can teach them from the beginning not to have that effect, then we avoid those losses. We af- avoid the maybe negative impact on their players no, absolutely. If we so, can teach it. And that's the big if is can this be taught or does it have to? And I think everything can be, but it's like, can it be taught or does it have to be some lived experience? It's a little bit like parenting. You know, you can go to all the parenting classes in the world and then you're a parent and all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm 100 percent there. Okay, so when we talk about this, one of the things that we're talking about is, is coach education and coach training, professional development. And, and again, before the show, we were talking about you know how officials often are required to get more training than coaches, and yet coaches are working with athletes on a day-in, day-out basis, dealing with a plethora of, of problems and responsibilities and challenges, and, and yet, you know, here I am offering, uh, you know, going into a clinic and seeing coaches being forced into the clinic. I hope I'm not that bad of a speaker, by the way, but, but being forced into the clinic because they have to get professional development hours and they just don't want to be there. They just want to go home. How do we change? How do we change it so that coaches a want to get better and, and B increase the standards so that it's just expected and it's normal as opposed to, what do you mean I have to get professional development? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, almost every profession uh, that is a respected profession in our culture, whether that's lawyers or doctors or teachers, um, judges, I mean, airline pilots, you know, you have to go to training um, and you have to keep your hours up. You have to... Uh, you have to get some um, retooling. You don't just get to do the same thing, um, mm-hmm. you know, forever. And um, and it's very interesting. I don't know where we lost that in the U.S. because we have such a high regard for sports. People right. in other countries will say, man, you people in the United States, you're just crazy about sports. I mean, you have them in all of your schools and you know, you wear all this gear and everything. I mean, they may have pro sports or they may have club sports and stuff, but it's like you folks are just crazy about it. And yet the standards for coaching education in most other countries are much higher than they are in the United States. In the United States, I will very frequently have a a coach, a foreign coach who will send me their resume and all of the articles that they've published and their degrees in coaching and say, you know, I'd like to get a job in the United States. And all right, it's a cynical answer, which I say to them much more nicely than I'm saying it to you. But it's like, hey, in the U.S., your credential is your win-loss record. Mm -hmm. If you win a lot, you're looked at as a good coach. If you don't win very much, you're looked at as a bad coach. And it's not going to make any difference what kind of credential you have. You can have a Ph.D. in coaching if your team is 1 in 10, you're no good. Um, yeah. And so I think some of it is we're a victim of our own system. And what I mean by that is um, 
because there is such a demand for youth sport participation, we're very short on coaches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so a lot of times we're just looking for bodies. And so we, we just need that 17 year old, you know, I've got two staff members here and one of them, you know, works with girls on the run. She's just a volunteer, right? She likes to run. So she works with girls on the run. Another one coaches a 12 and under youth hockey team. All right. He's not a professional coach. And yeah, if we put all kinds, I don't, I don't know if he even makes money doing it. He could be a volunteer. If we said to him, uh, okay, Jack, oh, you're going to have to get 12 hours of training here uh, to coach these 12 and unders. He'd be like, you got to be kidding me. I'm volunteering, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And so when I look at it in youth sports and in high school sports, uh, particularly is we don't have enough people who want to be volleyball coaches that we can be real selective about who is the volleyball coach. Um, when I look at club volleyball and you have uh, a club that has 30 teams in it and they've got youth, you know, they've got the under 12s, um, you know, three team. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of times it just ends up being a parent who cares about their kid and wants their kid to be able to participate and stuff and doesn't have a lot of training. And again, we're not compensating them. Um, You know, they may make, I don't know, a thousand dollars a year. Um, optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're, or they're volunteering. And so now when you put, you know, lots of things on it, Oh, you have to do this. You have to do this. So I think part of what we can do is we can make coach education more accessible, easier, if you will. I mean, we see lots of clubs now and we're involved in an ABCA and mentor mentee programs you know, where your older coaches, they help your younger coaches, they meet with them before a practice. Hey, what are you planning on doing? Or boy, I was watching you coach so-and-so. I thought you got a little hard on this one. You know, yeah, she'd missed two serves in a row, but boy, she really started to fade when you, you know, got, I got angry with her and stuff. See if you can keep that under control. So where we're teaching each other, um, you know, which again, doesn't, it isn't formalized programs, but I think if you look at where most coaches learned how to coach, that's where we learned how to coach by, by being an assistant or by visiting with our peers about how they were doing something. I, yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And that's partly why we're doing this series of interviews is, you know, let's learn from each other. Let's learn best practices from, from everybody across different sports rather than just relying on our own expertise. And this is how I did it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I use the analogy of the dentist when it comes to coaching where, I mean, I should be your dentist, Kathy. I, you know, I've been to a dentist, you know, I've seen the tools, I've watched things. I'll be all right. I should be okay. But but no, we expect standards. We expect training and professional development to make sure that you get the best dental care possible. But then when it comes to coaching, um, you know, I've, I've even seen collegiate coaches with, with no training getting hired because of who they were as an athlete. Because they were a good player. Yeah. No, no. We call it the star, the star power hire. Uh, you know, you hire somebody with high name recognition and you hope that they can coach (laughs) or that they learn how to coach. A lot of this has to be, you know, the small steps of, 
you know, somebody being willing to provide education for a local community, um, you, you know, a city, a city sports program and so on. But I think also it, it requires the, the, the impetus and the drive from, from the administration of those cities and so on. And, and I'll give an example where I offered to provide one free training to all the youth uh, coaches in a community. Just give me one hour just to teach basic health and safety and, you know, how, quick, quick how to run a practice for all those volunteer coaches. And their answer was no, because they won't stay. Mm. And when, when I think of that, I go, okay, do we have a, do we have a, a problem with the administration going, you know what, in order for us to have these sports programs, we need to have some basic training. Mm. And yes, you as a volunteer need that training, but without that training, your kids don't play. Right. And, well, and you know, what's driven a whole lot of this, Tim, where it is required has been insurance. I mean, I hate to say it, but, um, you but know. communities are still doing it where yeah. there's literally no training. And, yeah. and and I see it firsthand. So I think it's it's an area where we can certainly make, make inroads and, and contribute. Um, well, just in closing, uh, last question, if you think about, you know, most of the people who are going to watch this are going to be, you know, early career coaches or people interested in coaching, certainly those interested in volleyball. What advice do you have for those who are kind of building up their resume and coaching and gaining that experience? Well, um, I mean, coaching is a, a job that's not a job. Uh, I mean, there, there isn't any other activity uh, that you're going to be engaged in that is going to give you the same type of connection with people, the same type of ability to make a difference in somebody's life while you're teaching them how to serve a volleyball or how to pass a volleyball, that's going to give them the same type of ability to learn how to work with people in a group um, uh, you know, as a team, uh, it, I mean, I just feel so bad for people who work like other jobs, you know, <laughs> when I go to the dentist or whatever, I go, Oh, I can't imagine doing this every day, <laughs> you know, or when I go to get the oil changed in my car, I think, Oh, I'm so eager to pay you for this because this is awful. I never feel that way about being around coaches and being around kids when they're playing sports. And so in a sense, maybe that's why we, why we don't pay very much for it because it's like, are you kidding me? The, you know, this is one of the most enlivening things that you could do in your life. And so it's like, no, we're not going to pay you a lot for it. We're giving you the privilege of doing this anyway. So, yeah, I mean, and the other thing that, that I would say, particularly to women, um, is just hang in there with, lean in, if you will, to the decisions about family and all those things. You can do it. You can coach and be a successful parent. It's absolutely possible. And don't give up on the process or on yourself um, before you ever get started. Um, there are coaches out there. Uh, one of my favorites is Rhonda Shirley, who's at 
uh, University of South Carolina, upstate, got six kids, okay? It's doable. I don't know how she does it, but it's doable. Um, you know, and, and so just stay with it because it's so, so important for young women um, to also see that, uh, to make a difference with each other and teach other young women and young men how to lead. Yeah, absolutely. If somebody does have a question, they're not able to, to ask it live, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, just email me, uh, kathy.debor at avca.org. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I will, I promise you, I, I will respond and, um, yeah, yeah. I love volleyball and love what I'm doing here and stuff. And so, um, it's always a privilege to hear from people. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and, and wisdom on the show. I, I do appreciate it and hope everybody, um, does reach out with questions if they have any, uh, of course, if you're interested, be sure to subscribe and like, go to the YouTube channel so that you can catch up with all the interviews that we've been doing each and every week. But on behalf of myself, Tim Baghurst and Kathy DeBoer, so thank you so much for watching.